Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wassalatu wassalamu ala seyyidina Muhammedin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to our Misk Women series, Women on the Straight Path. I'm Um Abdullah and welcome back to our session today on Sayyida Bilqis, the Queen of Sabah, or the Queen of Sheba as she is known in the English tradition. Inshallah, we have quite an interesting discussion ahead. Uh, this picture here is the temple that was the main worship area in the city of Ma'rib in the kingdom of Sabah. And this is what remains. This is a current image. And inshallah, there's a, I'll show you a map in a moment of um, where this area is located in Yemen. But first of all, inshallah, we will start with our dua from Imam Haddad for learning and teaching. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Nawaitu ta'alama wa ta'alim wa tadhakkura wa tadhkir wa nafa' wal intifa' wal ifada wal istifada wal hatha ala tamassuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa dua ila al-huda wa dalalata ala al-khair ibtigha'a wajihillahi wa mardatihi wa kurbihi wa thawabihi subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful, I intend to learn and teach, to remember and remind, to benefit myself and to benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the book of Allah and the sunnah of his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to call to guidance and direct towards good, seeking thereby the countenance, pleasure, proximity and reward of Allah, the absolutely transcendent and most exalted. Amin. In today's class, we will be looking at some of the historical and modern representations of Sayyidah Bilqis, of the Queen of Sheba. And I want to get that out of the way first so that we can focus on what's really true about her, inshallah, and what we should be focusing on in order to learn from her story in the Quran. Uh, then we will be looking at uh, her story with Nabi Suleiman, the Prophet Solomon, alayhi salam, um, as it's uh, represented in the Quran. And then, inshallah, discussing a bit more some of the lessons uh, that we can extract from her story um, regarding our intention of uh, learning about, following, and becoming women on the straight path, inshallah. And this is a typical picture of uh, the inside of a house in Yemen in a mud brick building. Uh, similar to those buildings just in the previous picture there. Um, very, very high mud brick. Uh, this, I'm not sure exactly where that is. It looks like a mountainous region, but that style is very common uh, throughout Yemen. And uh, it's really the, I guess you could call the signature architecture of that part of the world. So this would be the interior. Very, very simple, as you can see. Um, of course, you get very luxurious ones as well, but this would just be a regular kind of uh, family majlis or uh, room that they would gather in. So today we're looking at this middle section, uh, Ma'rib, okay, which or the city of Ma'rib, which is traditionally uh, known um, in this area of Sabah. So here in the red, that area is now the province and it's the province of Marib and there's also the city there with the same name and as you can see it's not very far from Sana'a the capital it's about 120 kilometers east of Sana'a 
and I've just put over if you look further into the map a circle around Tarim and Seyun uh, which is where our teachers are from and where most of us would have some type of connection there somehow through our teachers um, also people we know who might be there at the moment attending the summer program so that's the distance um, and the location of Tarim in, in Hadramaut in that province and then further up I put a circle around Thamud which is where the Prophet Hud salam, is buried so this is the area that we're looking at um, this area of, of Ma'rib and it's a very historical area as we will see. So first of all we're going to look at some of these representations of Sayyida Bilqis. Uh, she's a historical figure who has certainly captured the imagination of people right from when she existed around about eight to ten thousand years ago it's said although some say a little um, later than that perhaps five to seven thousand years ago. Um, but it definitely uh, she was of course there with the Prophet Suleiman in Jerusalem and he was the one who built the Temple of Solomon um, obviously with his name so wherever, whenever that is dated then obviously that's the time that she was with him and her story is one that's really captured the minds of the early uh, the Jewish community and the Christian communities and she appears in some of their very early texts and it's uh, particularly interesting that she has been taken up not just in certain parts of perhaps the Arab world but also in Ethiopia where she is considered a queen and even their presidential line or their monarchical line until the 1970s is said to have come from her. So as for the authenticity of that I don't know I didn't go into that in great detail because I don't want to focus too much on the comparative side of things uh, because I think we need to focus on our own texts rather than trying to do some uh, historical or comparative analysis but just to put here that here she is represented in in the uh, Hebrew and also in the Christian uh, Ethiopian texts or that come from that area known as Ethiopia now or Habesha as we would know it in our Islamic tradition uh, and she is portrayed with dignity she's portrayed obviously with the look of a monarch of somebody with a power and grace and she's portrayed in a very respectable way and that's the early representations and I think whatever was represented of her before the Islamic time has a certain type of feeling and quality to it and there's there is definitely a type of respect but what happens after Islam comes and her story is mentioned in the Quran is quite different because now we have the ancient Jewish we have Christian and now we have an Islamic uh, interpretation of her and of her life and uh, the Islamic way which is the final revelation and which is the way that as Muslims obviously we should be considering her and what to learn from her it, it, it's different to what the Jews and the Christians did okay so after Islam they changed their views on her and there is a lot of very uh, unflattering and disrespectful uh, literature and uh, iconography and uh, visual representations of her and uh, some things which are just um, has to be outright lies other things just fanciful imagination and the like so 
it changes from this respectful view into something uh, quite disrespectful. So we see this painting here uh, on the left, uh, the first one, which is called The Meeting of King Solomon and the Queen of Saba by Piero della Francesca, who would uh, have painted this. It's dated 1452 to 1458. Uh, so this is an Italian painting, an Italian painter. Uh, so you can see there very much a religious representation in the hat of the man who is meant to represent Nabi Suleiman. Um, he looks quite Jewish in his appearance as they would have dressed at that time in the Middle Ages in Europe. Um, and here he is with the, taking the hand of the very white looking Queen of Sabah coming from the south of Yemen. And she also has a, a type of uh, head covering there which would indicate some sort of religiosity or piety. She's dressed in white. so. Uh, this is not so bad, obviously, it's quite respectful, but very much still in the European style and reflecting how they saw the world. Um, and then the next picture, of course, is something completely different. This is the visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon, and this was painted by Sir Edward John Pointer, uh, who lived in the 19th century, a very uh, Orientalist type of feeling here as you can see and if you look right at the bottom left of the picture uh, where the woman is standing to the left of her there's a basket and a monkey so the monkey seems to be one of the favorite symbols of orientalist painters for the exotic and wild and wonderful and mysterious and oriental middle east so all of that comes through we have peacocks we have bowls of fruit that are just groaning. We have this harem of delectable beauties in the background. Uh, we have the great uh, Greek uh, columns and everything there. So the whole kit and caboodle. And of course, we have a half naked queen um, walking up the stairs. So there's a little bit of Orientalist um, titillation there. And as you can see, the whole tone has changed dramatically from being a woman of reverence to being some type of figure that should be lusted after because she represents everything that's exotic, erotic and oriental. Now this was around sort of the late 19th century and then not so long after that I was very surprised to find this silent movie 1921 uh, where we have this representation and it says a uh, Queen of Sheba gigantic spectacle and story of the world's greatest love. So this relationship between uh, the Prophet uh, Suleiman and the Queen of Sheba now has been reduced to a rather uh, smutty type of uh, Hollywood love story and uh, all the excesses <coughs> that could uh, possibly be wrapped into that are there and then the picture of the woman on the throne as you can see also somewhat naked and sitting in this sort of very luxurious and over-the-top uh, type of uh, oriental fantasy image there so this uh, really represents the the lowest uh, the lowest type of representation of this great woman which is a uh, sexualized object and I think we looked into that a little bit last time when we looked at the story of Zuleika and Yusuf and uh, we saw that with Cleopatra and then what comes after that 
is the middle picture here and the one on the right. This is a 1959 movie called The Queen of Sheba uh, with this Italian actress called uh, Gina Lola Brigida and the man is uh, Yul Brenner who was uh, one of these uh, kind of rather exotic uh, Hollywood people brought in to play the role of all the foreigners, the good and the bad. And uh, again, we have this kind of cheap looking uh, belly dance thing going on. And this uh, caption here that men were her slaves and women her enemies. So now she's this real uh, politicized uh, femme fatale and really, really moving away further and further and lower and lower from this incredible woman and how she's represented in the Quran. And then we have a book cover here, The Legend of Sheba, Rise of a Queen, um, a novel, so another kind of uh, uh, fantasy construction going on there in literature. And then uh, finally, these are the most modern. So this dress with all the feathers was actually, it's actually called the Queen of Sheba dress. And it was designed by uh, the British designer Vivian Westwood from a 1995 collection. As you can see, there's some type of uh, attraction to feathers uh, that somehow the exotic world, the mysterious world of the Orient always has to have feathers associated with it. Um, very much a, a fantasy item. And this uh, jeweled bodice, which is also very sexualized, as you can see. And then the other picture here is linked to that, the WordPress link there. Um, Black is king, why I'm convinced Beyonce is the queen of Sheba. So this is a fan of Beyonce who's put up that post on their blog and uh, put uh, this picture here showing uh, Beyonce, the pop singer, in all her queenly type of grandeur and this representation of her with the sun headdress because the Queen of Sheba, Bilqis, had at first worshipped the sun. So I don't know if Beyonce in this particular thing was trying to look like her or whether this person just linked the two together, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, this might be a, a modern representation of how people think that the Queen of Sheba would look today and the types of qualities that she would appear to exhibit. So I just wanted to get this whole historical representation and modern representation kind of out of the way so that we can uh, see what's been done with this woman, um, this amazing woman in the Quran and one of the women on the straight path and see how uh, the um, non-Islamic consciousness and uh, popular culture representations, what they've actually done to her and, and how she's been portrayed there. So of course this has got nothing to do with her reality. So we'll look now at uh, Nabi Sulaiman and Bilqis in the Quran and uh, this story is featured in Surah An-Naml which is the 27th chapter in the Quran. But first of all, we're just going to discuss very briefly a little bit about Saba and the kingdom that she was the queen of and a little bit about her. So this picture here is uh, apparently a Sabaean inscription. So that's what their writing was, which also indicates a very highly civilized society, as we also saw from the temple ruins um, in the first picture. And it was said that in the millennium before the Christian era that Sabah was a very uh, significant regional power 
and that its trade was built mostly on its Luban. Luban is frankincense and Yemen is known to have some of the best or if not the best frankincense in the world. It also It's a resin from a tree which also grows in Oman and other parts of the Arabian Peninsula and also on the east coast of Africa, particularly in Ethiopia. Um, but uh, frankincense and uh, incense and herbs like medicinal herbs and things like that were some of the big trading goods uh, of uh, Saba at the time. And Bilqis is actually the daughter of the king. So she was born into this role uh, of being a monarch. So she's the daughter of a monarch and her father's name was Al-Hadhad and he was the son of Asarjil. So they came from this uh, line of rulers in this great and very, very powerful and militarized uh, kingdom of Sabah. Uh, as for her name, it doesn't appear in the Quranic text, although she's known right from the beginning and there are quite a lot of uh, hadith um, or that it come from Ibn Abbas anhu, and there are a number of narrations that come from him. So they're not prophetic hadith, but they are narrations that come from him, from a companion. And they contribute to our body of uh, scriptural uh, knowledge. And so there's quite a few things that, that uh, apparently he spoke uh, and mentioned about her and about Nabi Suleiman. So a lot of the knowledge that we have um, about her and in our Quranic commentaries on these verses um, is sourced from there. Uh, so there isn't any type of agreement on what her name means or where it comes from uh, other than the fact that it's probably not an Arabic name because it was a pre-Arab time although it appears to have been inscribed uh, in their language and it could mean the moon. So because they were sun worshippers, then it could be, they have some type of link to the word there that was their word for the moon. Um, so it could be that. And it's said in uh, later, later uh, narrations that her name is actually a compound noun. So it's made up of two parts and that it, uh, it came about when she took the throne and her father said, what will be the story of this queen with respect to the story of her father? And it was said, Bil peace. And so this is actually two Arabic words. So the B means it's actually a preposition or harfujar and it means with. So it's the, the harf, the, the letter ba. And then it's al qiyas. So al-qiyas means uh, to like measuring or comparing to. So in, in fiqh, it's actually one of our methods of um, jurisprudence of ascertaining uh, legal rulings because we have this process called qiyas, which actually means analogical reasoning. But it, what it means sort of basically is that there's a type of comparison made there. So by saying bil-qis, it's saying bil qiyas, which got or with qiyas, so comparing or, or measuring it. Um, so bil, bil qiyas got reduced to bil qis. Uh, so it means that her story will be similar to her father's story. So this is another thing that's mentioned about it. And uh, it's a quite a common name for girls, particularly in Yemen, um, even up to this day. And elsewhere, of course, it's quite a common name um, for Muslim girls to be named bil qis. Uh, after her represent representation in the Quran. 
uh, but it's uh, only it's a name that's only associated with her with the queen of Saba. Um, she reportedly had a huge army and it's narrated from Mujahid that she had a force of 12,000 uh, commanders and each of those had 100,000 soldiers under them. So whether those figures are literal or not, it still indicates that she had an enormous army at her disposal uh, because Sabah was a long-standing and very uh, powerful kingdom in the ancient world. Uh, she's known to have had a vision for her kingdom. She built temples and housing and infrastructure, and she was a woman with a civilizing outlook. So she was cultured, she was educated, multilingual. Uh, she was a patron of arts and spiritual and uh, spirituality and religion, and she was a connoisseur of beauty, which is also represented in her throne, which we will get to. And there has been much poetry written about her through the ages. So here we have the verses of the Quran. We have a few pages of this, which we'll just read through, and then inshallah we will try and derive our, um, our benefits and our points and guidance from this story inshallah. So first of all a little bit of background that the prophet Suleiman uh, Solomon was the son of David Dawood and that they had been given a tremendous knowledge by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the knowledge that they were given uh, was also included the knowledge of the language of the animals and the birds and all the creatures and also being able to control the wind. So this is something that had never been given to anyone else before them or after them um, and was a particular wisdom, a particular strength and a particular gift that was given to them and that Suleiman inherited a portion of this from his father and he was also granted more. And so, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Alaqad atayna Dawood wa Sulaiman ilma. So we gave David and Solomon knowledge and they said, Alhamdulillah. So all praise is for Allah who has favored us over many of his believing servants by what they had been given. And Solomon succeeded David. He said, Oh people, we were taught the language of birds and we were given from everything. This is indeed a real blessing. So he knew, okay, and this is an important point. So what we're getting here is our picture of who this person Solomon was, Suleiman. So he was a prophet of God and each prophet, of course, had particular qualities and characteristics that were required by them for the time that they lived in and for the people who they were sent to. And what Nabi Suleiman was given an abundance of was gratefulness and humbleness. Okay, and this becomes very important when we get to our part on Bilqis. So he says here that he has the language of the birds, Montik al-Tayr, and that he has been given from everything. So these are things that in our ordinary kind of material world we wouldn't think of. And then it goes on and says, uh, and to the service of Suleiman were mobilized his troops of jinn and men and birds, all held in strict order. So. He has this incredible army, not just of people, but also of the jinn. He commanded the jinn and he commanded birds and he commanded animals. And so they were undefeatable, um, absolutely undefeatable because of the, the, the qualities that all the animals could bring 
and their strength and their power and their intelligence that each of them had in their own way. And these were all known and uh, uh, able to be communicated to um, by Nabi Sulaiman. And of course, he was able to control them. So here there's a, a story very famous story um, from the Quran when they were all in strict order so they were marching and they came upon a valley of ants and Nabi Sulaiman heard a little tiny ant saying oh ants go into your nests lest Sulaiman and his troops crush you without noticing so he actually heard this because he was given knowledge of the language of all the creatures and it says and so he smiled and laughed or he was amused at her words and he said my lord and this is a very famous dua supplication uh, that he made and it shows his uh, gratefulness and the, the depth and sincerity of the gratefulness and being thankful th for the blessing that had been bestowed upon him and upon his parents uh, and he asks Allah that he should always do good works that please him and he says and admit me by your grace into the company of your virtuous servants so he doesn't think that by having been given these incredible gifts that he's anything special but he still beseeches Allah to uh, to put him in the company of his um, pious and virtuous servants I mean we ask Allah for the same inshallah that we should follow them and be in their company inshallah then Nabi Sulaiman when they returned back to his grounds his palaces and to his lands he inspected the birds and he said why do I not see the hoopoo bird who is the hoodhood and the hoodhood was one of his surveillance birds, a very intelligent bird that could travel far. And he used it uh, for going out and like reconnaissance, like seeking knowledge um, about what other people, kingdoms were doing. And so he asks the other birds, where is he? Or has he disappeared for a while? Has he gone? And then he was upset because he wanted this bird uh, to be there. And so he says to the, these fellow birds of, of the hoodhood that uh, tell him that, that I will punish him or I will even slaughter him unless he gives me a valid excuse. So he was kind of threatening, saying that I want this bird back now. But the bird didn't stay, for, didn't stay away for long or it could mean here that Nabi Sulaiman didn't wait for long. And then the bird came back and, and he went straight to Nabi Sulaiman and he said, I have learnt something you did not know. I have come to you from Saba'a with the reliable information. So here's the what the Nabi Sulaiman was, was waiting for, something significant to come from this bird's trip. And he says, Inni wajadtu imra'atan tamlikuhum. He says, I found a woman ruling over them and she was given of everything. Wa utiyat min kulli shay. And she has a magnificent throne. So it's highly likely that Nabi Sulaiman knew about the different kingdoms around, but he may not have known at that point that the, the, um, the, the, the leadership of this uh, city now had gone to the hands of a woman. 
So the bird managed to get quite a lot of uh, information or intel, intelligence, and came back to him and said she has a magnificent throne. So this is an indication of the type of wealth that she has uh, at her disposal. And he says, Wajetuha wakaumaha yestuduna lishems. I found her and her people prostrating or worshipping to the sun instead of Allah. Mindunilah. Wazayyana lahum shaytanu amalahum. So he says, uh, Shaitan made their conduct appear good to them and diverted them. So took them away from the path and they're not guided. So we found a spiritual people, a worshipful people, but worshipping the sun. So worshipping an object of creation and not the creator himself. And so the hoodhood, they say in the tafsir that the hoodhood kept talking, talking, talking because it knew that Nabi Suleiman was a bit cross with it for not having come back. And so he's trying to sort of talk, talk, talk and placate him and uh, calm him down when he hears all the, the great and significant news that he has. So interesting dynamic there as well, how it's represented in the Quran. So it's not just uh, an exchange of information, but there's a, there's a whole relationship also that's going on here through these words and how the bird is trying to um, kind of make an excuse for himself. So actually I don't know and it wasn't clear if this is the bird who says this or if Nabi Sulaiman says this but I think it's sorry Nabi Sulaiman he says, if only they would worship Allah, who brings to light the mysteries of the heavens and the earth, and who knows what you conceal and what you reveal. Uh, so here, bringing to light is what's important. This is a very important concept here, which is light. Because remember, they worship the sun. This is Bilqis and her people. But Allah is the one who brings to light the mysteries of the heavens and the earth. And Allah, He is the light. He is the light of the heavens and the earth. Because if you don't have any light that is shed on something, then you don't see it, you don't know it. And it's Allah who's the only one who can actually make the reality of things known in the way that they're meant to be known through His casting of light and guidance. And light is a metaphor for many things, but here in this story, it's a very important one. Then, Allahu la ilaha illahu rabbul arshil azim. So, Nabi Sulaiman says that Allah, there is no God but He, the Lord of the sublime throne of the arsh. So, here they discuss the fact that this woman had a magnificent throne, but Allah is the Lord of the throne, okay, of the real throne, the, the real God. Then, he says, Qal, okay, so we'll see whether you've spoken the truth or whether you are obscuring the truth. So it says in the Arabic, So have you told the truth or are you of the liars? So it uses the word kathibin, which means liars, but not lying in as much as trying to be dishonest, but whether or not he's exaggerated. So Nabi Sulaiman wants to know, okay, is this really what's going on or, or are you just kind of giving me some kind of sweet talk? you know, to, because I'm a bit cross with you. So again, you can see this dynamic at play through the words. 
Uh, so Nabi Suleiman says to the bird, go with this letter of mine. So he writes them a letter to the queen and deliver it to them and then step back, step back and observe. So withdraw from them and see how do they respond. So now the Quran goes straight to that and it's said in the commentary that when the bird goes to Sabah and he goes to the chambers of Bilqis in that area, and uh, there is a huge, almost like a mirror or a kind of uh, disc-shaped metal object or something that reflects the light of the sun. And so she would look at this and she would see uh, the light of the sun and then she would know that she had to go and worship. And so when the bird came, he came in front of this object and he lowered his wing in such a way that he obscured the light of the sun and that drew her attention. And so she got up to see uh, what had stopped the sun from shining on this object and then she saw the bird and the bird dropped this letter uh, and, and it was delivered to her. And so she picked it up and she took it straight to her counsellors and she said, kitabun karim. So uh, uh, this gracious letter, this noble letter has been delivered to me. Innahu min Sulaiman wa innahu bismillahirrahmanirrahim. She says it is from Sulaiman and it is in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. So this is where Bismillahirrahmanirrahim appears in the text of the Quran as well as appearing at the beginning of every surah except for Surah Tawbah, but it comes at the end there. Uh, and it appears twice in the text. So here and also in the story of uh, Nabi Nuh alayhi salam and with the building of the ark. Um, and he says, Bismillahimajareha wa mursaha. So where he says in the name of Allah for the setting off of his ark. Um, so here it comes in most, most beautiful ayah, alhamdulillah. And uh, the letter says, and he he mentions he begins it with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then he says do not exalt yourselves against me do not do not be arrogant against me but come to me in submission muslimin so islam is islam uh, we know that islam means uh, submission to the will of god so he's not calling her as a king uh, in submission like in servanthood to his uh, noble place as a king or a ruler but he's calling to her as a prophet and saying come to me and accept my religion that I am the prophet and representative of. Uh, that's the submission that he's calling to. So it's got nothing to do with their worldly positions but it has everything to do with their positions as creation who have been created to worship Allah so she doesn't know what to do so she goes to her counselors and it says and says advise me in this matter of mine and she says I never make a decision unless you are present so here we see her wisdom she doesn't just act hastily and impulsively she goes to her counsel and they say and remind her that we are a people of might and great courage and as we know they were a huge and massive and powerful kingdom but the decision is yours. So consider what you wish to command. So now it's the responsibility of how will she respond to this is put back onto her. And so she thinks now about not just the letter and what it could mean, but what all the possible consequences might be. 
So she says, when kings enter a city, they devastate it and subjugate its dignified people. Uh, this is something that they always do. So she's wondering now if this is a call to war. Okay, if she doesn't respond, then is Nabi Suleiman going to fight them? So she says, I'm sending them a gift and we'll see what the envoys bring back. So this was her way of testing the water. Very, very wise woman. So she sends a gift. It's not known exactly what the gift is. And with all the different representations and stories and ways that uh, over these traditions and time, uh, people have come up with some rather fanciful uh, interpretations of what that gift is. But what we do know is that it was something extremely valuable. So the envoy, and we're talking about 2,000 kilometer distance roughly between where she is there in that kind of central part of Yemen up to Palestine. So it took them um, quite a while to get there. So when they arrived, and Suleiman knew they were coming, of course, because he had his birds and he had his surveillance and reconnaissance teams who told him everything. You know, how many people, what they're doing, what they're carrying, where they are, etc. So he knew they were coming and was prepared. And they offered him the gift and he says, are you offering me wealth? So obviously when they got there, they could see the tremendous wealth that he had. And he says, what Allah has given me is better than what he has given you. So even though they were tremendously wealthy, so was he. And he had more, of course, because we know of the knowledge that and the miracles that he was given by being able to understand the language of all the creatures. And he says, it's you who delight in your gift. Okay, you're worldly people. You know, you're the ones who think this gift is really fantastic and can't be refused. He says, but I'm refusing the gift. Okay, and that's the point when she knew, when she heard that when they came back, she knew then that he was a prophet because prophets don't get beguiled by money and worldly things. So that was a very important sign for her. And so Nabi Suleiman says, go back and we will come with troops that they won't be able to resist, they won't be able to fight, and we will expel you know, your people from there, disgraced and humiliated. So he sends them back, but knowing that Seda Bilkis is going to come, and he actually invites her through that. So he says to his, uh, his council, his own council of nobles and of the creatures, that which one of you will bring me her throne before they come to me in submission because they didn't want a war. Okay, so he knew that she would come. And so an Ifrit, so Ifrit is one of the, the very powerful jinn. He said, I will bring it to you before you rise from your seat because that's how fast they work. And he said, I'm strong and reliable enough to do it. So he said, I can do that. Like, that's no problem for me. And then it, uh, it says, and he who had knowledge from the book. Okay, now there's some discussion here amongst the scholars about who this person is. Some say that it's Sayyidina Hidr, okay, who was the teacher of Sayyidina Musa in Surat Al-Kaf. Um, others say it's Sulaiman himself because he was the prophet at the time and that only he would have had such knowledge from the book from the sacred text which would be the the tablets uh, so not quite sure exactly who said it but obviously the most learned person in the council said i will bring it to you before you blink an eye so uh, again there's a, a miracle there of the shortening of time and space 
uh, and also all the, the laws of physics that we would know them normally. And this throne, which was said to take up several rooms. So it's not just any old chair with a few jewels on it. It's an absolutely massive structure, um, which again, we don't know because of the exaggeration of some of the, the other representations, but some say it stretched about um, 80 hand spans long which would be, you know, probably around about 30 or 40 meters and about 40 hand spans wide. So it was a huge thing and it was all gold and uh, incredible jewels and, and every single possible um, lavishness that it could have been on it was on this throne. And of course, pure gold and extremely heavy. So this throne was brought to him, to his presence, just like that in the blink of an eye. And when he saw it settled before him, he said, This is from the grace of my Lord. So this is the bounty of Allah to test me whether I am grateful or ungrateful. So again, his gratitude is highlighted here. And he says, He who is grateful, his gratitude is to his own credit. So he benefits from that. But he who is ungrateful, then فَإِنِّي رَبِّي كَرِيمٌ Then my Lord is independent and generous. He doesn't need the person's gratefulness or um, a lack of gratefulness. Allah is independent. Allah doesn't need any of that. But the person who is grateful has benefited from that. So he knows these blessings that have been bestowed upon him and at every opportunity he is thankful to Allah. And that's a huge lesson for us. Uh, always when things are difficult in our worldly life we look to those who have less and that forces us to be grateful for what we've got and if we are tested in our religious or spiritual affairs um, then we always look to those who have more than us and then that makes us improve ourselves so that's the the twice where we compare ourselves to others and benefit from that then Suleiman, Nabi Suleiman says to his people, disguise her throne and we shall see whether she will be guided or remains one of the misguided. So what they did is they dismantled some parts of it and they changed certain parts of it. Not significantly enough to make it completely different, but enough so that when she saw it, she wouldn't be sure. Like, is this really it or not? And this is also an indication of their engineering skills and of their craftsmanship and of the type of advanced civilization that they were. So he knew, of course, when she was arriving and she did arrive in this palace and she was called into his presence where her throne was. And so uh, Nabi Suleiman asks her, arshuki? Is this your throne or is your throne like this? And she says very wisely, uh, it's as though it is like maybe it is perhaps it is and then it says we were given knowledge before her and we submitted and again there's some discussion on that point but she had been prevented by what she worshipped besides Allah and she belonged to a disbelieving people so Nabi Suleiman knew that she would accept his religion and his faith which is of course Tawheed, the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the same message that all the prophets came with, 
and that uh, culminated and finished in the message of the Prophet Muhammad and in the Quran. Uh, but of course she had been deluded and taken off the path by her worshipping of the sun. So that was her first meeting with Nabi Sulaiman and then the second meeting um, he had had a pavilion it said that uh, uh, like a glass pavilion which was built over some water and that he had put his own throne uh, in the middle of this or at the far end of this and that when she entered this pavilion she had to walk right across this space in order to enter into his presence and so it was said to her go in the pavilion and when she saw it okay when she saw this glass pavilion she thought that she was actually standing um, or about to enter into a deep a, a pond like a pond or a little pool of water and so she lifted her skirt and she bared her legs because she thought she was going to have to walk through water so Nabi Sulaiman salam so he said to her this is a pavilion paved with crystal so some say crystal some say glass that it was actually a, a, a glass topped surface and underneath was the water and that it was at that point that she said Rabbi inni zalamtu nafsi oh my lord I have wronged myself wa aslamtu ma'a Sulaiman lillahi rabbil alameen and I have submitted or I submit with Sulaiman to Allah Lord of the worlds and that's where our story stops with Sayyidah Bilqis and she's not mentioned again in the Quran but what it begins with uh, is a, a, a woman who is a pious and worshipful woman but worshipping the sun and it ends with her having come into the calling of a prophet who calls her to the correct way and she through her clear intelligence and wisdom and the person that she was which is portrayed in this story very clearly and then she looks for the signs and she sees the signs and then she realizes that she wasn't looking at things properly and so when she sees this glass topped uh, surface and thinks it's water this really is the catalyst for her realizing that she's not seeing things properly and then it's pointed out to her that this is glass or crystal and it's not water then she realizes that she's wronged herself by not seeing the reality of things or the true nature of things and then she fully submits to Nabi Sulaiman, to his religion, to his call to Tawheed, to the oneness of Allah and she becomes a Muslim so one who has submitted to Allah and a believer and then it's not known exactly but most reports say that she went on to marry him and even had a child so um, that's our story in the Quran and a very beautiful story a rich story uh, not just talking about wealth but you can see the dynamics you can see the interaction you can see the intelligence and the fullness of the people in this story so it's it's multi-dimensional we're not just looking at some flat type of character in a book but we're actually talking about there's emotion there's thought there's real substance here which is depicted uh, very very clearly and very beautifully of course in Arabic um, much more beautifully than in English so we'll go on to our final part now uh, which is 
considering Bilkis and uh, what lessons we can derive from her story that will help us, inshallah, um, in our quest to be women on the straight path like she became. And it's clear that she had the entire world and its riches and that she was born into that. So whatever attachment she had to that in her heart, we don't know. But it appears that she was more of a, a pious and worshipful person and that her worship of the sun and her religious practice was an extremely important part of her life. But that she ultimately relinquished that when she saw the truth in the true light of prophethood, which was embodied, manifested and exhibited in everything about Nabi Sulaiman We can see that from the story and we have to ask ourselves, okay, how is it now that this story is represented to us? So if we go, if we go to certain books like modern books that are written about women in the Quran or women in Islam, things like that, then we might find that uh, she gets put in this category of the archetype of female leadership and that her story, and I mean, most of us I'm sure would have heard this somewhere, that she represents uh, the fact that women can be rulers or political leaders and be in leadership positions and that in Islam there's no problem with that. Okay, and that's what the whole thing gets reduced to. And we know that there's, uh, that it's fine. You know, here she was a powerful woman and her story's in the Quran and there is uh, definitely a place for female leadership. But what is that leadership and what does that leadership look like? So when we come to it from a modern perspective, we have a very uh, mono-dimensional or one-dimensional perception of what female leadership is. And that is really coming from outside our Islamic tradition. Um, and if you've uh, seen any of the paradigms of leadership lectures or heard them from Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, then he really goes into that and he heavily critiques his view that uh, we just sort of impose this concept of uh, Western management style, as he calls it, flip chart management, um, onto our stories, onto our tradition and onto our ways of understanding what leadership looks like. And so that whole series of lectures of his um, is about bringing out different people from history and showing their very unique sense of leadership. So it's not just about being in parliament. It's not just about having a political position. It's not just about being a CEO. Um, in fact, it's uh, completely not that. And, and Seda Bilkis shows us that. And uh, she shows us that she was an excellent leader and that her people were her priority, but also that she saw her insight was illuminated with the light of prophecy in Nabi Suleiman, even though she had previously had what she thought her insight illuminated by the sun. But she realized that in, in relation to the light of prophecy that came through Nabi Suleiman that the sun was only a servant to its creator and that even though the sun shone and cast this tremendous light across the entire world, that it in and of itself is just a created being. Uh, the sun couldn't be commanded. The sun couldn't be known. The sun was not like what she had seen of the power of God manifested there in Nabi Suleiman through the gifts that he was given. So the miracles that he was given and that, that they, they are a sign, they're a witness or a testament to divine power. 
And so she could see that by him having the command of their animals and their languages and, and, and being able to bring her throne, which is said to have that she locked away um, in a room before she left and that it was uh, in a hidden place but that he had bought it before her and how. So this was clear miracles that she'd witnessed. And so this son that she used to worship was in and of itself just another one of these um, beings of creation, a celestial being that in and of itself did not have any power but had been given its light only by how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had created it. So she saw what Allah could do and she saw that in the prophet Suleiman and she realized that also that the power that she had in her kingdom was also very little and relative because while she had this tremendous army at her disposal she didn't have the command of the birds or the jinn or the animals or anything else so and along with that she saw the tremendous and unerring humbleness gratefulness and servanthood manifested in him towards his lord so it's one thing to have power and strength, but it's another thing to recognize the nature of the gift that has been given to you when you have that. And she just didn't have that in, in her religion. The sun couldn't give her that. The sun's just a thing in the sky uh, which serves a function, but it doesn't have any power or will or knowledge in and of itself. Um, but she saw that the divine power and will and knowledge uh, there in the power and the humbleness and gratefulness that Nabi Sulaiman had. So she realized her weakness in the face of that true strength and power and therefore submitted to the Lord of Sulaiman uh, with him. So a couple of the points that we can uh, consider some of the lessons from her position as a queen and a ruler is that she ruled with the consultation of those around her, so she wasn't tyrannical. Uh, she was very considered um, with regards to thinking about the outcomes before she made a decision by sending the gift. And her subjects trusted her. And she was very cleverly uh, testing Nabi Sulaiman with her gifts of wealth because if he was a prophet and was truly calling to Allah, then he would reject the wealth, which he did. And she also gave a very considered answer when he asked her, is this your throne? And she said, it looks like it is. And she wouldn't say yes and she wouldn't say no because she didn't want to have lied. So if she said yes, then she could see it was a bit different and they might say to her, well, no, it's not. And if she, because they changed it a bit. And if she said uh, no, then they'd say, well, yes, it is. I mean, don't you recognize anything? So she realized that she had to be very careful. So she had very, um, very wise speech and she was also a woman of faith. But as I said, if we take this rather uh, reductive view of her as just being uh, the archetype or a symbol of a woman in power, then we're looking at it from a lens which is rather superficial and materialistic. And some of our scholars have uh, taken a different viewpoint and have looked at this story rather as an allegory which extends beyond the material and highlights the hidden meanings of the aspects of the story that inform us of reality and of the true nature of things. So Ibn Ajiba, um, one of our great Shadali scholars says, 
that this story is a complex allegory of the relationship between a spiritual master and the disciple or the murid. And so that Nabi Sulaiman was actually her spiritual teacher and that she was a student who came to him. And that it's also uh, an allegory of the spiritual love between Nabi Sulaiman and the Queen Bilqis. So this spiritual love, of course, is a far cry from the, the steamy romance as it's portrayed historically and now, and which really, really uh, throws a very ugly aspect to it. Um, but rather we're talking about a type of uh, love for the divine which is nurtured in this relationship between the, like the sheikh and the murid or the teacher and the student. Um, in this case, him being the master and she coming to him as a, uh, as a, a submitted uh, student of his knowledge. And Ibn Ajiba also says that in one's uh, spiritual life and in a person's spiritual and and uh, spiritual journey which is of course meant to be a, a transformational journey that a person relinquishes their throne which is what she did and that the throne symbolizes the lower self or the ego the nafs and and submits this throne to the spiritual master who is the sheikh so not just is there a, a dynamic there of student-teacher, but that actually the, the real action that the student or the mori does is they give over that, the, the ego, their lower self, for the sheikh to re-sculpt for them, okay? In the sense that the sheikh gives the student practice, gives them intentional practices, gives them a spiritual practices to do on a daily basis or whatever is required and that it's through that process that this throne is re-sculpted or reformed um, into something new but that is not in and of itself completely different so the human being will always have their nafs and their ego and their lower self but it's how that lower self is trained and mastered and ruled by the heart and the mind that's sort of the ultimate goal so it gets reformed, but it doesn't uh, become a completely different thing. And that that's what this throne represents. So when Nabi Sulaiman says, let's disguise the throne and see if she recognizes it, then this is a kind of a, a symbol for that process of transformation between the sheikh and the student. So seeing the true nature of things is really the goal of the spiritual life. And this is what this story is really trying to tell us and that ridding oneself of the illusions of the external and material world and of attachment to them with the heart is the first step and perhaps it was easy for Sayyidah Bilqis we don't know because she as we said she was born into wealth and power and and it's always been there but how attached was she to it we don't know but it seems that she knew it for what it really was okay but we don't we'll never really know that but the point is that her spiritual insight and her guidance from Allah became connected and that's tawfiq. So when she's given that divine grace for all those things to come in to, into being, into light at the same time. So she was a worshipful person and she just needed that guidance. So Allah guided her at that point when she lifted her garment to walk across what she thought was the water only to be told that it was glass so it was at that point that the clarity 
and the divine grace that enabled her to see the true nature of things was granted to her. And then she was really able to purify her heart from attachment to what she had been worshipping, um, which is an object of this temporary and finite world um, and uh, ultimately meaningless in and of itself, which is the sun. It does its job, but that's, that's all it's there for is to do its job. There's nothing else it can and can't do. And so at that point when she lifted her, her skirt to cross, then she actually saw the illuminated truth as it was manifested in, in the Prophet of God, Sulaiman alayhi salam. So we need to ask ourselves, what are the, the bright lights and the blinding illusions that are preventing us from seeing the true nature of things? Are we looking for money and fame and power? Or is it even the lack of light in things like fear? So what is it that we fear about our life that will have us go down a path uh, looking for answers and not really seeing the true nature of things and uh, for the very reasons um, for why we're here and what we're created to do, which is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we'll just finish with this verse. As-shaytanu ya'idukum al-faqra wa ya'murukum bil-fahsha wallahu ya'idukum maghfiratan minhu wa fadlan wallahu wasi'un alim. So the shaytan promises us poverty and orders us to corruption. But Allah promises us forgiveness from him and his bounty. And Allah is the all-encompassing and the most knowing, the all-knowing. So that's what we have to remember. And that's, inshallah, what this story um, portrays for us and represents for us, inshallah. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide us, to accept us, and to illuminate our insight and to illuminate what we see with our physical eye and what we come into contact with our physical senses and to enable us through an illuminated mind and heart to be able to interpret those things and to see the true nature, the true reality of the things around us and to open our path and enlighten our path through guidance, through following the Prophet um, on that path, inshallah, to reach him in the most illuminated and blessed state, inshallah. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.